aunque tú me has dejado en el abandono, aunque ya han muerto todas mis ilusiones, en vez de maldecirte con justo encono, en mis sueños de colmo, en mis sueños de colmo, de bendiciones, sufro la inmensa pena después de la vida, siento el dolor profundo de tu partida. first uh, podcast for the semester. First of many. First of Second many. for us tonight. Second tonight. So it is almost 11 o'clock and Professor Winkleman and I just recorded a podcast about Cotton Mather for his American political thought class. So we're about to uh, get into a little bit of a conversation um, on the first five chapters of this book called Contentious Politics. Mm-hmm. Um, which was written by two, two of the greats in the field of social movements, um, Charles Tilly and Sid Tarot. Uh, Charles Tilly is no longer alive. He's no longer with us. He died a few years ago. Uh, in fact, he died, I believe, before this current edition of the book came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so those revisions were done by just by Tarot. Um, Rips, Chuck. Rips, yep. So, yeah, I would also say that, like, I, on the, sometimes we, we say hello to each other, but 
we didn't say hello to each other tonight. Um, but I've been a little bit on the on the struggle bus mm-hmm. this weekend. Mm-hmm. I think after I got True. through, I think after I got through the week of just getting through the first week of classes, all of the sort of events largely actually related to contentious politics that have mm-hmm. been going on in the last week or so, but really broader than that, um, sort of, I just was have been sort of obsessed and struggling with sort of thinking them through. I don't know whether we'll talk about any of that tonight, but um, maybe, I'm ready. maybe in our, it's not directly related. There's actually the, the students in this, so one of the things that this book does um, is it gives a lot of different stories of different movements across the world so sort of global movements and they do there's a big chunk that highlights ferguson so it was a sort of interesting um sort of reading that now in this moment and sort of it highlights of course going back to the civil rights movement talks a lot about the riots of the 60s right following you know also like earlier stuff about the sit-ins and the sort of diffusion of that um so it gives like many different sort of little um stories and anecdotes of different kind of contentious sort of moments. Um, so none of this is directly about what's happening in the world. Maybe we'll talk about that some this week in our discussion sections. I think all of this stuff can certainly be, um, we can think about through these lenses that mm-hmm. these kind of sort of conceptual stuff gives us to think about what's happening now. Um, so anyway, yeah, you can... You want to begin? Go ahead and begin. All right, from page seven. Contentious politics involves interactions in which actors make claims bearing on other actors' interests, leading to coordinated efforts on behalf of shared interests or programs in which governments are involved as targets, initiators of claims, or third parties. All right. Now, contentious politics is the subject of this long sentence. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that this book does a lot of is a lot of like conceptual terminology definitions it's important Um, that stuff comes out a lot yeah it gives you a a, a, um, shared language correct to talk about these efforts I'm sorry these um, phenomena ideas yeah I was reading the word efforts here So contentious politics involve interactions in which actors make claims bearing on other actors' interests, leading to coordinated efforts on behalf of shared interests or programs in which governments are involved as targets, initiators of claims, or third parties. So, I mean, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I guess it's not a definition. It's just telling you what contentious politics also involve. Because I was thinking as I was reading this, this doesn't sound necessarily super contentious. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's kind of interesting to think about. Like, where's the contention, mm-hmm. right? I mean, everything then is contentious politics because every all politics involves actors making claims bearing on other actors' interests. Right. So one of the things that's interesting, as um, I think I've mentioned to you and that as I sort of introduced this book, is that both of these scholars have written this at the end of their careers, uh, like literally in the case of... Tilly, right? Um, but Taro is still working and doing, but he's a, a very senior scholar. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that has happened in the evolution of their thought over time is that they have wanted to widen that net 
very much of contentious politics. Yeah. So I think that sort of when they think about contentious politics, they kind of want to like put in protest and that stuff in this broader sort of spectrum, like continuum of things that might happen, right? That go everywhere from like, you know, revolution and terrorism and civil war all the way to like almost routine. Mm -hmm. I mean, they wouldn't put routine policies, but you know what I mean? It's like they've, mm -hmm. they've, I feel like one of the reasons that this definition is in fact like that is partly because of this fact that they are, um, A, wanting to broaden what we consider and so that we're considering this range. And then B, I think also so that as they've moved out of a, so a lot of the social movement studies um, came out of the United States and were focused on the United States and Europe. So contexts that were democratic, which we're going to talk about here um, as we go a little bit farther. Um, but I think the other thing that this, I think that they start to try to do is open it up so that we could think about ways in which you could be engaged in contentious politics that might not look to an outside observer is very contentious, right? I got so it's more kind of secret kind of okay. clandestine kind of contention. So anyway, so I think that's there. The other thing that I, the reason I kind of put this quote is apart from the fact that contentious politics is fundamentally has something to do with claims making, mm -hmm. right, which is in here, is this part about the government, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that the one thing that's sort of interesting here also is that when we're in this class, which the class has the title like political protest, right? Um, but which is in a certain regard, right, when I think about protest and when I look at protest, when I study protest, I also look, I look at many events where claims are being made against the state. But I also look at plenty of things that where one private actor is making a claim against another private actor, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, I would still think of this as sort of political contention because once it has erupted into this kind of public protest, right. then we're talking about a situation in which the government is sort of party to it, whether it is a target or not, right? right? And as it a is a third party, right? Is it right. a target initiator of claims or a third party? And the way in which we could think about that is that, first of all, governments make rules about what kind of claims making is mm -hmm. legitimate and not and legal and not. Um, so they're setting the parameters for what kinds of, you mm -hmm. know, claims can be made by who and whatnot, right? I think uh, they say on page eight, who can make what claims by what means and with what outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So that this is partly being defined by, by states, by governments. Then governments also have the ability to then enforce those rules with force, right? Because mm -hmm. they tend to be the ones that control police and the military. And then I think finally, though, uh, I think this is actually not the order that it's talked about in the book, um, right? If protest becomes significant enough, even if it starts against a private actor, um, it could potentially become a threat to government, right. Right. either because the government loses its legitimacy based on something like that, or because it you know, escalates into an actual um, far more revolutionary, maybe an overstatement, but a way in which could certainly, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, create a problem for the regime. So I think that that part of why I highlighted that quote uh, or that kind of that sentence was because of that part about the government, which I think is quite important, right? That, mm -hmm. that even when we're thinking about these that are sort of strikes or whatnot, that they can have this um, sort of political component because of the way in which 
public claims making is almost always mm -hmm. partly involving the state as kind of the regulator of. Right. right. They're an audience for the right. action. Correct. Right. If not, then the workers and the managers would negotiate privately. Right. Right. And in that case, the state might not ever become party to the right mm -hmm. conflict. Mm -hmm. To mm -hmm. the part of, I think, for me, part of contentious politics is this part where it is erupting into mm -hmm. sort of the public sphere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. You want me to keep going? Yeah, go ahead. Con this is from page 14. Contentious politics features enormous variation in its issues, actors, interactions, claims, sequences, and outcomes from time to time and place to place. But it also displays great regularities in the ways that contention unfolds. We will see how similar mechanisms and processes produce distinctive political trajectories and outcomes depending on their combinations and on the social bases and political contexts in which they operate. So it's... We're social scientists. Obviously, it's predictable, <laughs> right? That's the yeah. that's what they're saying. Well, to some degree, mm -hmm. and I think that these guys, again, they're late in their career, are far more willing to step away from it being predictable. But I think less than the social science part of things being predictable to some degree. I think what's interesting here is, I mean, if you think about, okay, so you have seen protests in multiple countries, right? Yes. True. And what was your experience of thinking about a protest in Syracuse versus a protest in Oaxaca, Mexico? More trahe. <laughs> more trahe. Um, I mean, partly, I think, more... Um, I mean, that's, yes, that was kind of a joke, but also the major difference was a particular kind of... That protest that we saw in Oaxaca was one that was all about indigenous representation, right? I mean, like, that was marshalling symbolic. I feel like we saw more than one in Oaxaca, but well, I, mean, I sure. certainly have, but... I, I was just thinking about the, the, that, the one where you had all of those indigenous groups marching in right. their traditional right. garb, partly right. as a way of... Like, right. as a protest for recognition and to marshal these symbolic resources that, like, all of these different groups of Oaxaca. Right, right, right. 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 Uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that goes into a little bit. I don't think Versus I... these protests in Syracuse where ever, it's a hodgepodge, right? And there's no, right. there's no single or even multiple identities that are, that are like, readily identifiable. Right, right, right. Within the, within the march. I mean, there are some, there's, like, a leadership, and it's, like, four... Like the most recent uh, over Black Lives Matter, obviously it's about a particular identity's representation, but the march itself and the action itself wasn't divided so cleanly into these blocks of right, particular sure. identity groups. Sure. But they were both what? What was similar about them? I mean, mass mobilizations of people in the streets right. and usually targeting a municipal edifice. Right. So, right. I mean, this is, I think, part of what they're saying, mm -hmm. right? Is actually, um, I, is, is this, I, I can't remember if you have a quote later on that talks about this, if I'm jumping the gun here, but, um, but that basically, like, there is a whole lot of similarity that we can see, and then there is a whole lot of local, uh -huh. right, divergence Particular, where right. it's like, I mean, if you think about sort of it in the, 
BLM protests, right? I mean, if you think about the signage there, right, there was all kinds of symbolic stuff that was happening in terms of what signs said mm -hmm. that was signaling in-group knowledge or something to our local place, right? So, like, things about, right, any of these hands-up-don't-shoot signs, right, which mm -hmm. go back to sort of mm -hmm. metaphors from earlier, right? So yeah, that from you 2014, have, right? Right. So, I mean, some of these, like, where we see some of these... Um, symbols or whatnot of protests that go over time, but in a place, right? That, you know, that that's... Six years of this mobilization. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so, so that we're seeing sort of some of the, like, the marshalling of the resources are somewhat, are, are like, we're in both cases seeing these marches, but then, or and, like, demonstrations, but then simultaneously with their own symbolism and mm -hmm. whatnot, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Should I keep going? Yeah. Innovation, from page 15, excuse me. Innovation occurs incessantly on the small scale, but effective claims depend on a recognizable relation to their setting, on relations between the parties, and on previous uses of the claim-making form. Mm hmm So, effective claims, right, so there's, you've got to be recognizable Right, I mean, this is sort of the going back to this idea that, like, when we've been, I mean, so I've seen, well, we've also seen it in, Pan you've seen protests in Panama, too, right? So, I mean, like, think about like, oh, yeah. where we've seen, like, I've seen protests in many different countries, right? And, like, marches and demonstrations, I could see anywhere and be like, that's a protest, right? That, like, it's, it's so easily identifiable mm -hmm. as this sort of form of protest that we all know that that's a protest. Mm -hmm. And part of what this is saying is that that whole idea, which um, Tilly and Tara would partly call a repertoire of contention, but mm -hmm. also is like, is that we tend to use these forms that have been used before. Mm -hmm. And if you innovated too much, the problem would be that no one would even know you were protesting. Right. Right? Right. So, so like when those flash mobs, remember when flash mobs do, yeah. first popped up and some of them were political in nature. Right. You sure? But maybe weren't recognized as at such, that moment right. as a political statement. Right. Or if you like, we're like, we're gonna like go out dressed as like giant like monsters and stand. Like people will be like, oh, that that's cool, Weird. but they might not have any idea. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that. There's yeah. this sense in which, if you actually went, what if we threw a bunch of comic books? Yeah. Right. <laughs> like people will be like, why are they doing that? Right. So that there is some sense in which like there has to be enough sort of like playing into the form that mm -hmm. people actually see it and are like, those people are protesting. Right. But the, the innovation is actually sometimes what gives protest its power. So like right. if you just have a march, everyone's like, those people are just marching. But if at that march, right, I mean, this is those kind of innovations like the the Tarot and Tilly talk about the Greensboro sit-ins as like an innovation on the protest form mm -hmm. where it's like, mm -hmm it's kind of taking the form of some of these other things that have been seen before, but then it's like having its own, you know, that this is happening at these lunch counters in this particular way. And then like, then that sort mm -hmm. of becomes rapidly diffused and then becomes its own kind of form. Um, so that like innovation does happen where a kind of new protest form um, is erected, but then, you know, it, it sometimes diffuses and sometimes doesn't. They used another example of one that became less um, 
they were talking about during the anti-apartheid protests, that the, the part of the divestment stuff in, mm -hmm. in college campuses. And I didn't actually know about this, that there was this big move of making these what they ended up calling shanty towns, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. it started out at Columbia mm -hmm. where they just like dragged out furniture. Right. Um, you know, to like camp out, right, to make a camp out, which those things are reasonably common. And then I guess by the time it hits Cornell, they have made some kind of like tar paper shanty town, mm -hmm. and they called them shanty towns, and it was supposed to be like a representation of like how like the town, the black African like townships, like mm -hmm. the sort of conditions, like the divergence of conditions of, you know, whatever. Um, this sort of innovation that is about this particular thing, of course, takes off to some degree within these like college campus protests, but then doesn't become a thing, right? right. Because the symbolism has to do with this very specific event. And so it doesn't ever leave that, you know, like people aren't Network making of, tar mm -hmm. paper, you know, whatever shacks and right. other protests because it was like quite tied to this particular uh, issue, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So some of this is a little bit about like if you go too far outside the bounds and people don't understand what you're doing, then it's just like ineffective. But mm -hmm. you, if you stay completely in the sort of path of the normal, you may not make a sort of newsworthy splash almost, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Okay, makes sense, makes sense. Uh, from page 16, think again of the protest demonstration. It grew out of, and at first resembled, the religious procession to a place of worship. It turned contentious as demonstrators moved from a place of assembly to a site from which they could confront the targets of their claims. Later, it became the central form of action mounted routinely to demonstrate a claim before the public. With the diffusion of mass media, the public expanded from neighbors who witnessed a demonstration passing beneath their windows to a wider range of citizens who could watch it on their television sets. Mm -hmm. It seems to me to be rehashing what we've been talking about. Yeah, to some degree. And yeah. I think also that like those kind of like innovations at the margins and in the context in which protests aren't allowed, right? Where like the religious procession mm -hmm. like morphs into a mm -hmm. right sort of a protest event. And in some cases, this is actually literally the case, right? Where you, you see in some authoritarian regimes, like this happened in Iran, um, in the protests that eventually led to the um, overthrow of the Shah, mm -hmm. um, where funerals became sites of right. protest mobilization. Right. Um, so that you actually sometimes have, especially where protest is heavily regulated, these kind of religious occasions, mm -hmm. which are some of the only sanctioned abilities to gather, mm -hmm. right, become themselves sites of protest. And so, like, those things, of course, then are part of how we can think about the evolution of protest comes from some of those sanctioned, mm -hmm. um, though potentially still kind of non-state or, again, where you have kind of close relations between church and state, these kind of tolerated, right, falls into mm -hmm. the sort of tolerated zone of mm -hmm. social activity mm -hmm. and then sort of becomes a politicized form. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, then that changes over time, right? And some of that changes because of changes in political context and some changes because of changes in things like media, right? Where you right. used to partly the, the march 
to the demonstration mattered because you were literally walking around picking people up. Like right. you were like, hey, in the neighborhood. Right. come out of your come out of your house, right? So like the march had a Which very they did here. They did. In they did Syracuse, do it here in Syracuse, right. yeah. They went through different neighborhoods as part of the um there was forty days of BLM protests. Um forty a number with religious significance and also, yeah. Or Christian significance. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, still speaking of protests on page 17, seen generically, they have features that adapt to a wide variety of circumstances and have a meaning to a wide variety of potential participants and audiences. That's demonstrations. Sorry. Demonstrations, sorry. I've got to flip the page here. But seen in particular circumstances, demonstrations offer a variety of facets that can be attached to local knowledge. Skillful organizers adapt the generic form to local circumstances, embedding a modular form such as the demonstration in the languages, symbols, and practices that make them compelling in those circumstances. This is but one specific version of, and then it breaks off. I think that part should have been crossed out. But anyway, this is the, um, this is sort of what I was just talking about a minute ago, right? That like we've probably, I mean, I've seen demonstrations all mm -hmm. over the place in probably nearly every country I've been to, um, at least since uh, since I've been in grad school. Um, maybe that's not totally true, but close. Um, and right, that they all have this kind of, this is this idea of this modular form, right, that we can mm -hmm. recognize it anywhere. But then I could say about them that they've all had their different characters, mm -hmm. right? Like, I feel like I would say about Mexican protests that there's almost always effigies, right? Like, mm -hmm. there's, like, regular, like, coffins of the person that they don't like. Fake coffins, not real ones. Right. Like, paper mache kind of coffins. Effigies of, you know, people. That's, like, far more common in Mexican protests than I think I've seen here. And that has been, that's a, I don't think I've ever been to a protest here with, like, effigies like that. The symbolic burial, I think, though, has come up more often than I would have thought in American in protest. US? Yeah. I I've like, never, I don't think I've ever seen one though. And I feel like, I feel like with Trump, I guess there have there's been, been more Trump effigy. effigy stuff, there's been more yeah. effigy because he's such a symbolic figure. He's so easily right. symbolized, right? right? Yeah. I mean, he is already. I still think I mean, it's a, a less I mean, common part of our repertoire, right? True, true. And then, like when I was in Argentina, I felt like there was like, crazy amounts of like more like fire fireworks as explosions which again we've seen some of that here now against the police but this wasn't like in a kind of a like a mm -hmm. contentious moment it was just like to get attention i had never seen that anywhere else where they were just like creating a cacophonous mm -hmm. event with fireworks i also saw a lot more like kind of music and dancing and that was in some of the youth protests so i mean i don't know how mm -hmm. unique that was to the youth protests but right had a very different flavor i think than ours is just that stupid this is what democracy looks like thing. <laughs> yeah, i mean i know people love that i, I don't mean to be flipping but I, this is really one of my least favorite parts oh, yeah. i want more songs I, we didn't i haven't heard that at either of the blm protests here though that has been not a part of mm -hmm. either of the recent ones i mean i don't think um in any case, uh, so yeah, so I think that there's some, yeah, there's a lot more chanting here than I think, I can't think of listening to, maybe there were chants in other countries, I don't know. 
Definitely. I would think so. Maybe chance. Anyway. Yeah. They were chanting in Panama. Yeah. Those striking workers. Those striking workers. A lot of banners. Banners. This was pretty common all over the place. Mm, banners, I think, are pretty common. Yeah. Uh, page 37 on to 38. Repression, we define as the attempt by a state or its agents against challengers in order to end their challenge by arresting them, harassing them, or destroying their organizations. Violent repression is only one of a differentiated set of tools that a state uses in order to oppose challengers. I mean, we've been talking about that for a long time in this household. In this household, we have been talking about that for a long time. But my students maybe haven't been thinking about that for a long time. That violent repression is just one mode of trying to end the challenge? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the things um, is that repression as we are and have, I think the students now, more than when, say, we started teaching, mm -hmm. would actually think a lot more about repression in our own context. Like, some of my students have actually been at protests mm -hmm. with where mm -hmm. they were afraid sure. of the police, right? Certainly, if they've been to any recently. Correct. So that they have been at protests with tear gas. They have been at protests where cops were, you know, like surrounding people and in a way that, you know, was definitely they weren't sure what the outcome was going to be. And I think that this is an, a, a different moment than we would have had with students, even activist students that were protesting, you know. Certainly. Certainly. Well, I mean, the, the police are themselves often targets. Right of these protests, and so the idea that you would be seen more direct, rep directly repressive tactics in the moment doesn't surprise me, I guess. There's also scholarship um, that suggests that protests with black Americans are more likely to draw police repression. Whatever their claim or target. With, mm -hmm. with whatever their claim or target. Mm -hmm. So basically, mm -hmm. Davenport and Sewell um, I can't remember if anyone else was involved. Maybe Armstrong was involved with this project. Did this huge thing. They only do it up through the 90s, I want to say. Mm -hmm. um, so they basically do a newspaper event coding of protest events. So it's not perfect, mm -hmm. right? So they're basically only able to code, like, did the newspaper say that there were, you know, black, black people, people huh? African Americans? It's not black or brown. It's only, it's black. I think they're specifically looking at... Um, at African-Americans, mm. black protesters. I'm sure they were using whatever mm -hmm. terms would have sure, been sure. used in the pre press. Um, and they basically find that, like, no matter what, like, no matter whether you control for tactics, for, like, claims, like, anything that would be more likely to bring on repression, that just, like, even controlling for all of that, that, like, protests with black protesters, at least in quantities enough that the newspaper is going to describe them mm -hmm. as such, mm -hmm. uh, are more likely to be subject to repression than non, than protests that were not sort of described in that And way. that would be sort of tactical repression by the police in that, or whatever agency is running is the relevant. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you mean like a, like in like the police are showing up at the event and arresting yeah. people? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. 
I don't mean like a general, like a larger strategic repression of like, because they're doing protest events. Right, correct. This was about protest events. There is some scholarship. There is at least one article. I can't think of the scholar. If any of you guys are interested, I could probably dig around and pull it up. But there is one scholar who actually says that we should think about the um, over-incarceration of... As a strategy. As a strategy of social control apart from, like, broader social control, but actually, like, that this sort of is part of a pattern of protest control also. Um, that seems not unreasonable to me, like as a as an interpretation. I mean, we know social control is broad, right? And, I mean, there's. I don't think that this scholar. I can't remember who the scholar is. I don't think the scholar was trying to say that like this is why there right. is so right, but more like we should actually maybe when we're thinking about this, we should think about this as part of. Um, you know, this sort of broader, like that this isn't apart from our protest politics in this right. country, right? Right. Um, yeah, so anyway. Um, but this quote actually is talking about the other side, which is that repression isn't all, violence isn't all, and arrest and that isn't all that states have, right? Right. So that they're doing plenty of other things in addition to this, which um, didn't get talked about really nearly as much. I think there was a chart actually that gave some um, options, right? But I mean, states ha- can choose all kinds of things, right? They can negotiate, they can make all mm-hmm. kinds of symbolic gestures, um, they can demonize protesters, or they can praise protesters, or they can praise the right. fact that people are protesting, right? Or Call they, some of them patriots. Yeah, yeah. Right? For example. For example, right? I mean, that these kind of gestures do matter. They can conciliate, right? They can choose to like meet with protesters or In negotiate flame. or. Inflame. Yeah, right? I mean, that they can do all these different kinds of acts uh, that are part of controlling protests, even if they never involve the police. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And they can also use those strategies in concert, right? So that you might use the police and also, you know, make statements to the press, make a tweet, make a, right? Like, that these things can happen simultaneously. You can also make concessions while also repressing or mm-hmm. conciliate and then repress, right? So mm-hmm. there's, like, all kinds of ways in which the various strategies of protest management can be bundled. Right, and I think I, I like that. I mean, one of the things that comes out to me there is just thinking about how contentious politics, it's not... One of the reasons the menu of of state options in dealing with contentious politics is so broad is that it's contentious politics unfolds over time mm-hmm. and is not just a, a series of events, right? Like it's not just like a decision tree, right? Right, but it's kind of like a blob, right? And there are different aspects of contentious politics. I mean, even at a single protest, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There, even at a single demonstration, the state is behaving in myriad ways right. towards different parts of that protest. Right. And there's, especially now that so much of this is like covered by media, is also having to make decisions about how it wants to appeal to third parties, right? Um, so that that becomes also part of this whole, I don't think I gave you one of these quotes, I can't remember, but there was some discussion of this in the Tilly and Tarot, but about sort of like part of what 
protesters are trying to do is like get sympathizers to become protesters and get people that are neutral to become mm -hmm. sympathizers. Mm -hmm. And right, that there's this mm -hmm. whole, and the flip side of that is that the state wants often everyone to stay home. Wants everyone to stay home. And Definitely wants us to stay home. Doesn't want to like alienate in, in a democracy, like, you know, where elections matter, doesn't want to alienate voters, right? So, like, it might want its prime constituency to make sure that, like, it thinks it's... Those people want to be seen as handling this well, right? And this is true, I think, even in authoritarian regimes. Legitimacy still matters in those regimes, even if elections aren't the way, right? But you want to, right, be seen as, you know, making the right gestures to you know, be seen as a good leader, right, in these moments. Right, right. Uh, I have to form this thought a little bit more, so I'm going to keep reading. Maybe okay, so wait, before you okay. read this next one. So um, this next part, I think we've jumped ahead in pages here. Um, yeah, by, by quite a bit. Yeah, so we're now moving into a section in which... Um, Tilly and Taro are basically setting up what in sort of old school social movements literature would have been called political opportunities. But that, again, as I said, these scholars are senior scholars and have sort of come to like think about this in these very broad ways. And so where they've kind of combined, they, they're setting up, they first set up these two main dimensions of the political context that they think matter. So one is regime type and one is state capacity. Okay. Um, and then they argue that where regime falls on these two dimensions plays a major role in structuring contentious politics, right? So whether it's a democracy or an authoritarian regime or okay. somewhere in between and whether the state has high or low capacity. Um, but then they give this little list here, which is kind of old school political opportunity structure, which doesn't actually map clearly onto either of the two dimensions, even though they seem to sort of call it mapping onto the regime. Okay. Um, but it's unclear to me that it really actually does. Um, and I think they even kind of note this when they say that this doesn't vary, like it could vary broadly, like across countries or across states or whatever, but it actually, we could think about these factors varying for individual protesting groups. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to sort of set that off as uh, as what you're about to read. You're about to read a list. I'm about to read a list. And so this is a list of things that are we could think of as part of the political opportunity structure. And these, are, these this list is characteristics of the whole set of political structures? No, this is this is like old school political opportunity structure, which they have sort of dropped into a chapter about regimes. Okay. But it's really old school political opportunity structure. Okay. So the things that seem to matter in the political opportunity structure. Correct. Are the multiplicity of independent centers of power within it. Uh-huh. And with the it there is... The state. The state. Okay. Uh, its openness to new actors. The, the state. The, the, the it is always going to be the state. Okay. The instability of current political alignments. The availability of influential allies or supporters for challengers. The extent to which the regime represses or facilitates collective claim making and decisive changes in all of the above. Right. Okay. So these are the political opportunities. 
this is kind of old school political opportunity structure, I think. And I think one of the things that sort of we can think about in this, like, what's the first one? Multiple centers of mm -hmm. something. Right. I mean, we could think about this. Certainly, I suppose we could say that in general, democracies are going to have more of these than authoritarian regimes sort of very broad in a broad brush. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure in every case that that's the case. Right? right. Like in some cases where you have a layered state in an authoritarian regime, there actually may be multiple actors where like you might be able to sort of like put your claims. And in some cases, right, on is particular issues, authoritarian or democratic alike, right, you may have very narrow places where you can actually effectively put mm -hmm. pressure, right, to sort of um, have reform. So that, that that can kind of matter in terms of thinking about your your protest is whether or not there's anyone that can actually respond and meet your demands right. that you can target, right? Right. Um, and that the more people that you can potentially target, the more likely that you're going to be able to have success because you can get at somebody that's more likely to be able to be flipped versus, you know, not. Yes. That seems true. And same thing with allies, right? There's no reason why you couldn't have allies, right? That that thing isn't necessarily fixed on democracy or authoritarian regimes, no, God right? No. I mean, you could be well placed in an authoritarian regime or in a democracy in terms of the structure of allies. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so, I wanted to highlight this one partly because it's a little jarring because it actually doesn't fit with what I think they say it fits with because right. I think it's like they're they're like pulling some of the kind of old way that these guys certainly thought about social movements and political opportunity okay. structures into this kind of different, more recent, I think, conceptualization. Um, and I don't think it maps perfectly. Got you. Onto that. Got you. Uh, okay. So from page 62... Yet regimes also shape institutions. Regimes exert significant control over institutional operations in three complementary ways, by prescribing institutions, for example, by requiring people to belong to mass associations or political parties or to marry only with, it, with people of the opposite sex, by tolerating others, for example, by allowing different sorts of religious groups to gather so long as they stay out of public politics, and by forbidding still others, for example, by banning private militias. In a parallel way, regimes prescribe, tolerate, and forbid different sorts of claim-making performances, perhaps prescribing mass pledges of allegiance, tolerating religious processions, but forbidding armed gathering except by the government's own military forces. Of course, low-capacity regimes can forbid all they want, but their lack of capacity inhibits their capacity to limit contention. Yeah, I mean, that, I like the part about the capacity there at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly makes me think a lot about contemporary politics and contemporary United States mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, where I feel like we're just seeing low capacity all over the place mm -hmm. like our or the great variety the variation in capacity subnational variation in capacity and, compa and, and ability to limit contention or to shape it in any way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know yeah for sure I, I think that this one is kind of uh, this is sort of more setting up this kind of newer framework, right, which the idea would be that in a democracy, right, you see less prescribed sort of things mm -hmm. in general, and in an uh, authoritarian regime, you, you would see more forbidden 
and more prescribed. Mm-hmm. But then the capacity dimension makes a difference. So they go on to say that, um, you know, on the whole, this is also just below this quote you read on 62, high-capacity undemocratic regimes prescribe an exceptionally wide range of ritualized performances. For example, in the Soviet former Soviet Union, citizens were expected to vote even though the Communist Party was unwilling to tolerate opposition, right? So that we can see these kind of things uh, where there's a lot of things that are prescribed and a high-capacity regime can actually enforce that. that. And then in a democracy, in a high-capacity democracy, what we would expect is that there would be a lot less prescribed things, a lot more space for, you know, contention, but that that would be far more managed, right? Mm -hmm. That you would be seeing, you know, much higher level of involvement of state agents and protests and sort of Mm -hmm. managing it and and whatnot. And then where you get these low-capacity regimes, whatever it is that they're sort of doing on paper, right, in actual practice, they have very little ability to... Mm-hmm. you know, manage right. that. Right, right. Um, from page 63. Some regimes also tolerate behavior from some groups that they forbid from others. For example, the communist Chinese regime tolerates thousands of demonstrations from workers and neighborhood groups that it does not tolerate from religious sects or ethnic minorities. The French state, in fear of the growth of Islamist terrorism, bans women from wearing full-face headdresses, but has no objection to Jewish stars or Christian crucifixes. The Turkish state encourages free expression from citizens of Turkish ethnicity, but not from Kurdish or Armenian minorities. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I think that this is, like, one of these things that gets us back to the fact of that earlier political opportunity structure, thinking about things is that, like, we can parse the democracy authoritarian division and the high and low capacity division. Um, But especially, or at least in the states where there's the ability to enforce that's more capable, right? So maybe you still need some level of capacity, but where within single regimes there is variation, as you just mentioned, right, some subnational variation mm-hmm. things, ha- right, things vary subnationally, but they also vary by who you are, sure. right? Sure, sure, sure. So that, like, my experience of my democratic regime is different right. than someone differently situated's right. experience of protesting in my democratic right. regime, right? right? So I think that that's one of the things that I think I, I'm, I'm for thinking about democracy and obviously as you well know state capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a lot of my research thinks about state capacity. Um, but I actually don't think we should lose some of this stuff about the the sort of political opportunity in the old sense where it's actually more, somewhat more, like even within a given regime, you can have these, you know, certain things that are going to mm-hmm. be, right, threats and not, er, like mm-hmm. seen as threats by the regime or not and tolerated or not. So... I think that internal variation is also important. It's not just like, oh, because we're in a democracy, I'll <laughs> protest no, away. Like, like right. everything's everything's golden. Like you right. know, you know. So I think that there's there's a sense in which I think this internal variation can like democracy can't do all the work to explain who is repressed and why, or who wins, who mm-hmm. mobilizes and succeeds and why. Right. right. I mean, democracy. We can certainly make some broad distinctions between. That protest here is going to look very different than protest in, you know, China or right a high capacity authoritarian state, but that at the same time, 
if we're trying to understand protests in the United States, democracy isn't going to help us. Right. Right. Very right. much. Right. Makes sense to me. Um, here we are. Page 63. Movements hover at the gates of institutional politics, sometimes entering, sometimes rejecting, but always in an uneasy relationship with institutions. So I guess movements, I'm wondering about the relationship of the concept of movements and contentious politics. Mm -hmm. Because to me, contentious politics is always, I mean, to me, contentious politics is always in institutions. Because it's always, I mean, I thought that that definition of contentious politics sounded pretty institutionalized no, I to don't, me. No, I don't think that that, I don't think you should read that from their definition of contentious politics. No. no. Okay. I mean, they're really still talking about, I mean, these guys are still talking about protests, right? Yeah, I guess so. But they talk about it in a way that makes it sound far more institutionalized because they want to make it sound far more regularized and predictable. I don't think so. I don't think that's right. Maybe the, that weird quote gave you that impression, but I don't think that's true from the what the students read. Okay. I mean, so move. So they would use movements and contentious politics interchangeably. No. No. No, they wouldn't. So, like I said, contentious politics are capturing. This is like a wide variety of phenomena. A wide variety of phenomena. And what's a movement then? So they're going to get, we're going to talk about this next week. So A movement within contentious politics. So like here sure. where we're, I think here really they're talking about social movements. And so okay. for a social movement, they're talking mm -hmm. about something that's more organized that lasts over time, right? Mm -hmm. Versus a, something like a protest event that could be. So a social movement could be a form of contentious politics, but it's Correct. not the only form. Correct. And a social movement always exists in an uneasy relationship with institutions Whereas certain forms of contentious See, politics... I think all of contentious politics in, is in an uneasy relationship with institutions. The way I think about contentious politics. Really? Yeah. Can you give me an example of what you're thinking about when you're thinking about something that you would consider contentious politics apart from whatever definition I gave you to read? That is in an uneasy relationship with institutions? That is not... Yeah. That is not with an uneasy relationship with institutions. Well, I mean, I don't think I probably, I feel like if I threw out some examples that come to the top of my mind, I feel like I'm going to be, I feel like I'm not on solid enough ground uh -huh. to suggest them. Okay. Um. So I can't necessarily... Well, can you give me one of those that comes to mind, even if you think it's maybe not defensible, but what you have... Like, what are you thinking of when you make that claim? So I'm thinking about the NBA players recently. Okay. Right? And their refusal, the work stoppage. Right. And there's a part of me that wants to say, I'm not sure how uneasy the relationship with various institutions, I mean, other than the police... To, to whom they're, you know, which they're targeting. I'm not, I don't know how uneasy the relationships are in this scenario. Right. And so... So what you're saying is that you see... I think institutional players, I think that institutional players are doing a lot of contentious things all the time. Even right. while they aren't looking... But I guess looking, I think that, like, they... 
are not actually having a fight with the NBA there, but with the state. Yeah. Right? And so I think that... But who isn't in an uneasy relationship with the the person that commands the legitimate use of force in a territory? Who's Who is in an easy relationship with that? I think a lot of people. Why? Like, <laughs> why would you be in an... Oh, how... Who could exist <laughs> who is not in an uneasy relationship with someone that could kill them? Who I, the fuck could exist <laughs> like that? I don't, I don't know. But I think a lot... I mean, I, the reason I'm angry is because I know you're right that some people aren't in an uneasy relationship with that, but, like, I don't understand how you do that. But I also think that, like, okay, so on the larger <laughs> sense that um, of... Yeah, of like the strand in our household that <laughs> runs a little <laughs> runs a little anarchist. Right. Um apart from that, like so I would say that like a lobbyist is maybe not in a in this like hovering around between whether they're an insider or an outsider, right? They're just working to be an insider okay. to make influence, okay. right? If that's what if that's part of what this means. So I mean, I think what I would understand that to be saying is partly this okay. sense of like when okay. I think about contentious okay. politics, contentious politics to me fundamentally has to be about whatever stupid definition they give in this book. Contentious politics has to be about some kind of extra institutional challenges to power. Okay. Right? Right. So if contentious politics has to be about some kind of extra institutional, you know, conflict, I think we could forget that it also tends to involve a lot of insider politics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? And mm -hmm. I think this is part of actually what these guys are trying to capture, even if I don't think I love their definitions, mm -hmm. right? Which is that there is this sense that in order to be successful, you actually have to have people on the inside. And mm -hmm. the students read the um, this book about the Cumbi mm -hmm. um, Collective and some reflections of those, some of the women that were involved early on. And then um, Alicia Garza, who is the BLM, one of the BLM kind of founders. Um, and I think we saw this a little bit of this, like, what's our relationship to the state, to the inside, to the institutional, to the inside, right? And we're actually going to think about this a lot this semester because we're going to talk about the mosque in Bolivia. We're going to talk about the Tea Party, right? Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. sort of sense of, like, actually a lot of movements and a lot of movements that have success are kind of straddling this insider-outsider thing mm -hmm. and i think it's actually really a challenging position for movements to think about sure how you navigate that we talked about this a bit in in our zoom um mm -hmm. yeah so mm -hmm. so anyway yeah, I think yeah, that no. that's yeah, yeah. right like where where what i think i am pushing here but i also still think that a lot of people have a pretty easy relationship to the state institutions well, I mean, that is a delusion, but a lot of deluded people out there. A lot of <laughs> deluded people out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's cool. That's, but maybe I mean, not. I mean, look at this kid that just shot two people 
with a giant ass machine gun. Like he had a real easy, I mean, now maybe he's having different thoughts about how he feels about the state, but like, I mean, he was like walking around, like chumming it up with like coercive agents of the state without any fear. Presume, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what he said going on inside his mind, I shouldn't say. Mm-hmm, but like, mm-hmm. but I think that there is, I mean, I think that this is actually, I mean, it's the part of contentious politics and protest that has always been dangerous. I mean, we just talked about Puritans and Anne Hutchinson and whatever, right? I mean, but like when you go against the established order is when you become sort of facing off against state agents when, and when you perhaps exist in a group that faces state repression, right? But if right. you're not in either a group that generally faces state repression or are actually a dissenter, then, you know, I think you can go on along and not think that much about anything. Anything. Certainly not about that. I mean, you might think about other things, but Sure. Sure. Uh, all right. I I want to interpret this crazed graphic. <laughs> okay, so I've given you. This, I have here. I've given. What page is this from? Page ninety nine. Okay, so there's this crazy uh diagram on the top the of the forces of order, the public. <laughs> so this is actually not a crazy Tilly diagram. It's from a French scholar named Pierre. I don't know how to pronounce the French Favre. Hmm. Um, and his book is on the demonstration is what the book is called except in French and it's about the demonstration in France like the demonstration right sort of as a concept yeah man so he's given right us on. this amazing diagram I'm there here so and the I demonstration really contains, actually love it so this is supposed to be a spatial representation of the demonstration <laughs> I don't know if it's exactly you think it's spatial spatial I think it's spatial. The demonstrators form the large egg-shaped thing there. And then the forces of order protrude into... Into their egg. Into their egg. There are sympathetic bystanders within the egg. Oh, wait. Hold on. I'm wondering whether the demonstrators are a subset of the public, and the public is the large egg. Oh, yeah, I think that it, large egg must be the public. Large egg is the public. The demonstrators are one of the other smaller sub-eggs. And then, who the fuck are the parade marshals? <laughs> that's awesome, man. I mean, I think that's cool. I think I understand the parade marshals, but that seems like a highly specific, culturally specific... Well, I think it's like notion so or the, or the symbolic. I mean, that's cool, man. <laughs> so you know, my grandma was a parade marshal once <laughs> in the After Harvest Festival in Ellenwood, Kansas. Not that kind of parade marshal. <laughs> Your grandma was definitely never a protest marshal. No. She's, so it's like the marshals, right? We have those. You know, like the people that are like wearing vests and trying yeah, to yeah. make sure that people yeah. are on. Yeah. You know, like not. Like they know how to do it. This is what democracy looks like, champ. <laughs> All right. So what am I supposed to take from this is just that this is a representation of the demonstration as a concept, and there's a lot of people there. I think partly... Not everyone's in the public. 
I think got. partly what I mostly loved about it is that if we think about the protest generally as like the protesters or the demonstration or the protest because this I thought was the demonstration it is the demonstration <laughs> it's the word is almost the same as in Spanish it's like manifestación but I don't know what it is it's like manifestation in French something it's like the same way in any case I think what's interesting about it is that the demonstrators are the protesters, right? Yes. So I, we I, just don't call it the same. Yeah, no, but, I know. I got that. But the but I think we tend if if I was gonna ask, I think most people for like a kind of mental map, I feel like of a protest, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like they would give me the demonstrators and the forces of order, right? The police or whatever. They might give me the press. Mm hmm But I think that might be it, right? You don't so, think they give you the sympathetic bystanders? I don't think so. No? I don't think if I was like, who's at a protest? I don't think they would be like the sympathetic bystanders. Mm. Interesting. And so I think that those, What if you have a protest that is only sympathetic bystanders? Like a slacktivism protest? No. I mean... I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the first wave of um like I'm thinking about about events that activate and mobilize people who are weakly attached to something or who are count, that doesn't count as a sympathetic bystander. Okay. Right, they would be if they they're there, up. they're a protester. Right? right. So this would be like the shopkeeper who comes out right. and is kind of like Good work, young people. I I admire your passion. Yeah. Right. That's your sympathetic <laughs> bystander. And in the modern era, almost it could also be like your retweeters or whatever. Yeah, they are sympathetic bystanders. Right, are sympathetic bystanders. But that they're gotcha. not putting their body on the line. Right. right? Okay. I see. I or understand. they're not even, you know, even if in the context of far more banal, like nobody's expecting to get hurt. Though I think you always have to think about protests as something that could go awry. But like, sure. even if you were assuming that it's going to be pretty, that you're, they're not spending their time. Right, that they haven't like gone out right. and actually stood out in the sun for two hours. They, yeah, they've, you know, they've, they're 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 there by circumstance, not by choice. Or are they or, sort of virtually or in some? Yes, you know. the retweeters. Right. Um, yeah, no, it's nice to think about a protest as a significantly more con or a demonstration, excuse me, as a significantly more complicated uh, and complex thing. Yeah. Um, you got any more? Um, how long have we been going? For an hour. I think that's probably, probably good. I was going to talk a little bit about this last one that's about sort of the um, sort of like external, this kind of getting onto this idea of external publics and sort of what Tilly and Tarot call certification of like, which is basically are you getting kind of boosted by, you know, other kind of authorities that mm -hmm, give mm -hmm. your movement some power. But I think it, given that it's what time? Midnight? It's midnight. Sure. <laughs> At least eleven fifty three. We could probably call it a call it a night. Um, I don't think we were very funny, but you did get a little bit agitated. So I got a little agitated. You know, it was a little late for being funny. I think. Yeah, and uh, a little abstract. A little abstract. Yeah. A little straightforward. A little definitional. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I was. A but it's important. It's important to lay down definitions and have a common language and get some right. conceptual specificity. Yes, yes. So we have one more week of Tilling Tarot to finish out the book, um, and I hope that we'll have. Well, we'll see what that's like. It's probably going to have some similarities to this material and that it'll have some of that, but we're through the introductory chapters, mm -hmm. which had a lot of that. Mm -hmm. So um, the later ones, I think, yeah, we're are just getting started. Just getting we're started. Just getting started. Um, so anyway, I, I hope that you guys have enjoyed this podcast and I look forward to um, talking with you guys um, about this. I, I want to actually point you all to think a little bit about some of the methodological kind of methodological is maybe not right but the different kinds of research questions that came up across this um, set of chapters as a way to help you guys orient and start thinking about your own research questions um, so there were a lot of places where uh, a series of kind of questions about protests and movements and contentious politics got asked and these are good signposts for what you might think about in your own research so we're going to definitely talk about that at least in part during uh, our conversations this week uh, over zoom so just maybe make a note of those uh, places where you see them in the text and I think that's it so hope everybody has, uh, has a good start to the week and I will see you all on Zoom. Bye-bye.